0: Of David. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat at my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, Seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me. But the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord. Lord, you know everything about us. You know the time we came into this world, and you know the time when we will leave. You know all of the pains and all of the joys we have each experienced. You know what each of us needs, you know our sin. And Lord, it's in light of that that we need Your Word and we need Your Holy Spirit to help us. Spirit, we pray that You would minister to each of us according to our need. That You would both give us understanding into Your Word and as individuals, understanding to know how it needs to apply to us, and as a church, that we would see how it needs to apply to us, that we would not be merely hearers of the Word, but doers. Lord, I confess my weakness, my inadequacy. I pray that You would guard me from saying anything amiss, and that You would allow Your Word to be clear. For the sake of your children, whom you love, build us up that we might know you, and that we might enjoy your presence all the days of our life. We ask these things in your name, amen. So this Christmas, the movie that I have most been longing to see, um, for any movie, for it to come out, is going to finally come out. And it's based off a book that I was given a few years ago uh, from one of my students. And the book was so impactful to me, so emotionally moving. um, At one section of that book, um, I actually, I began to uh, weep uncontrollably. I mean, it wasn't just, you know, tearing up. I was Crying, and I can't remember the last time I had cried so hard. I was so deeply moved. The book in the upcoming movie is entitled Unbroken, and it's about the amazing story of uh, Louis Zamperini, who was an uh, Olympic athlete, an unlikely one at that, uh, who had his athletic career interrupted by World War II. He ended up getting drafted by the Army. He was a bombardier for, on a B 24 in the Pacific Theater. And he makes it through uh, many dangerous situations, time after time again. And eventually his B-24 bomber crashes in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. And if you've seen the trailer for it, that's one of the big scenes. You see this bomber crash in the ocean. And he survives for months on a little raft with no supplies, and he drifts just on currents in the open ocean. And at the end of that, he ends up getting captured by the Japanese and thrown into a POW camp. And then into even more horrific POW camps. And throughout the book, every time he gets out of one situation, you think, all right, finally he's done. It it can't get any worse. And then it does. And it can't get any worse. And then it does. And time and time again, Zamperini finds himself praying. God, if you get me out of this, I will give my life to you. I mention this because trials, more than any other phenomena in our life, draw our focus and attention to God. And I'm well aware that you, the members of this church, are not strangers to trials. Many of you have been tried significantly, even recently. And I have no doubt that God has used the trials in your life to draw you closer to himself and to cause you to be more dependent upon him. And it's because of that that trials actually we recognize are one of the greatest blessings that a believer can have in our life because they force us to take our eyes off the superficial hopes and joys that we naturally tend to look to for hope, and they force us to look completely to God as our ultimate hope. And this is the essence of Psalm 27. How a believer should respond to trials. It's a spirit-inspired prayer of David. And in this prayer, he does four things that are listed for you on your outline. And I think it really becomes a guide And I tried to break it down into these four points. Because it is a guide, I think, when we go through trials, how is it that we can endure? How is it that we can respond to these trials so that uh, we can make the most of them? I'm at a loss for words. That we can endure, that we can um, hold fast to God and... uh, And, and be in a position to truly glorify Him despite the pain and the affliction that we feel. In verses, beginning at verse 1, 1-4, uh, one the point is remind yourself of the character, or 1-3, through three, remind yourself of the character and power of God. And then the next section, pursue God as your perfect hope. Plea to God, knowing that you are not alone. And then finally, wait confidently. The first point, verses 1 through 3, remind yourself of the character and power of God. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? You see how David is reminding himself and even speaking to whoever his hearers might be Of who God is. He says, Whenever evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. He states that to, again, remind himself of the power and the character of who God is. He goes to God. And he specifically describes God as his light, his salvation, and his stronghold. Light here signifies the power to overwhelm darkness. In the darkest places, even a single match has a significant effect on the darkness. And when we're surrounded in darkness and we don't know what's out there, We don't know if there's a threat just a mile away or right in front of our face. It's terrifying. And that is also the way our future is. We don't know what's going to happen the next five minutes or let alone even beyond that. Despite this fact, David knows that he can face the unknown with confidence because God is his light. He also describes him as the salvation and stronghold. Both terms indicating that David has confidence that God is going to preserve him no matter what befalls him. Whether it's a massive army or even a minor threat, he has no reason to fear. Because God is the source of his confidence. He doesn't have to fear anything or anyone. Being a romantic, I used to, um, as a little kid, dream of what, how, how great it must be to, to live in a castle. And I, I would imagine myself uh, living inside this massive structure with its great rooms and its vaulted ceilings and walking along ramparts or ascending their tall towers and getting to the top and being able to look out across a vast, beautiful landscape and thought how wonderful that would be. But I failed to understand as a child that actually living in a castle would be not much greater than living in a modern military barracks, because that was the point. They were a stronghold. It was a fortress. It really, its primary purpose wasn't to be a living quarters, though many people live there, just like in a military barracks. But if you've ever spent time in a military barracks, they're not particularly comfy, And these fortresses were uh, built, particularly in uh, Western Europe, to defend coastal cities from invaders, particularly people like the Vikings who would come and plunder the countryside. And so all the people in the surrounding villages around the castle would run into the castle and there they could be kept safe because there would be provisions and there would be protection and soldiers from whatever might threaten them outside. And this is what David envisions when he describes God as his salvation and his stronghold. He knows that he can run to God and God will protect him and provide for him. And he proved this in his life very early on as a young man when all of Israel quivered in fear because of a giant of the Philistines threatening them. David as a young man said, I can take him on because I've seen God provide for me even against a bear and a lion. And he will provide for me against this Philistine. And he did. He did. God is our protection and provision. And when you find yourself in a trial, and again, no matter how small or how significant, God is still your protection. And he is still your fortress. And you can trust him. Remind yourself of his character and his power. Secondly, pursue God as your perfect hope. As David says in in these magnificent verses, one thing I have asked of the Lord that I would seek, that I would dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. For He will hide me in His shelter in the days of trouble. He will conceal me. Under the cover of his tent, he will lift me high on a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above all my enemies. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and I will make melody to the Lord. Even those last words are so powerful in that he's not just, I'm going to get up and talk about how great God is. He's going to sing. His heart is going to be filled with joy as as he contemplates what will happen as he turns to the Lord his hope, his salvation. And what's really great about these verses is here David gets very personal. It's a very personal psalm of David. He's unfolding his heart. He's revealing to us what he, matter, what he cares most about, what is most important to him. And what he says is behind all of his pursuits is one pursuit, that he would dwell in the house of the Lord all day of the days of his life. What he's referring to when he speaks of dwelling in the house of the Lord is his longing to be in the presence of God. He wants to be in the presence of God. And it's helpful to remember that in the Old Testament, even as we just recently studied Exodus, that was God's purpose. The reason for the law, the reason for the tabernacle is so that Israel could dwell in God's presence without being consumed. They they could be consecrated holy and they could be in his presence. And as long as they were holy, they could enjoy his presence like they did um, that first time upon the mountain. And they wanted that. That was the plan. But of course, They struggled with that throughout their history. And what God provided for them was a temple and a tabernacle and they could go whether it's at a feast time year after year or those who were so fortunate like David and they could go to the temple and they could be in the presence of God. But it's helpful to remember the presence of God was just there. David could leave the temple and he could pray to God, but after he left the temple, God's presence wasn't there with him in the same way. And that being with God so and in his presence so delighted David that he wanted to carry that experience to every every part of his life. He wanted to remain with God, just to dwell with God. And of course he couldn't because he had other responsibilities. He was the king of Israel. He had to go out on the battlefield. He had to administrate his kingdom. He had to make judgments. He couldn't just stay in the presence of God. But that, if he could, if if there's anything he could, he wanted to do, it was that, just to, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to pour out his heart before him. And knowing this, that David couldn't just simply take God with him wherever he went, it helps us to see what is so remarkable about what Jesus told his followers in the night in which he was betrayed. Again, Israel, after after the temple was destroyed uh, around 500 B.C., God's presence left. They did construct a new temple, but God's presence wasn't there. Then finally, Emmanuel came, the Messiah, and God was with us. And then God said, in just a little while I will no longer be with you. And when the disciples heard those words in the upper room. They were crushed. And they panicked. And you see that as you look at the upper room discourse. But Jesus says this. In John chapter 14, verse 15. As He tries to comfort them, and when he tells them i will no longer be with you but he says in verse 15 if you love me you will keep my commandments and i will ask the father and he will give you another helper point is one like me to be with you forever catch that to be with you forever even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him you know him for he dwells with you and he will be in you. And then he says later on in verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and we will make our home in him. I mean, understand what, what Jesus is saying. We tend to take this for granted because we're new covenant Christians and, and when we're born again, we get the Holy Spirit. But this was new. This was new for everybody. Everybody. They had Jesus, but Jesus is saying, I'm departing so that you can have the Holy Spirit in you, and God, my Spirit will be with you wherever you go, and you don't have to go to a temple. You are going to be the temple, and you can enjoy me. And then Jesus later on, as He just this thought continues, even in John 17, Jesus prays, uh, again and again, he talks about, oh God, I wish that, I, what my longing is, is that they would see my glory, that they could see the glory which you gave me before the world was created, and that they might enjoy my presence with them. That was Christ's longing. That's why he came to earth, that we could enjoy his presence permanently. And that's what David wanted. And what David wanted, we can now have every day because God sent the presence of the Holy Spirit to be with us. And we believe this truth confidently, that all believers have the Holy Spirit. It's explicit in Romans chapter 8. And yet, I would imagine if you're like me, that we don't Enjoy the Holy Spirit and the presence, like often, like David is describing here. We believe He's there. We know He's there. We know He's working, and yet our experience of that amazing and indescribable gift, God Himself, is not something we fully enjoy. So, how do we make the most of the presence of the Holy Spirit in our life? I think it's actually shockingly simple. What I mean by simple is not that it's um, easy, but it's uncomplicated. As Paul writes in Galatians five sixteen, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. But the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit's presence in your life, is love joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, he says, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So, The hint hint that's given there is if you have the Holy Spirit, walk by the Spirit. Keep in step with Him. Live as He would have you live. Don't keep giving yourself over to the desires of the flesh because when you do, your enjoyment of the presence of the Holy Spirit is, is shattered because you're not in line with the Spirit. In fact, what you're doing is you're grieving the Spirit. Paul says this as he talks about the Holy Spirit in Romans 8. He says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit, if you're living by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body. Put to death the deeds of the body and you will live. So the point is, the way we enjoy the presence of the Holy Spirit is we put to death the deeds of the body, our fleshly desires Now, of course, this doesn't mean that when we fail to do so that that, that the Holy Spirit's going to leave us. He will never leave us. We are sealed with Him. He is our guarantee that we are His. But what it does mean is that our enjoyment of His presence is crushed. I mean, just, just think about how in your own homes that when there's... Tension, because of a, a brokenness, because of sin between you and your spouse or between your parents or your, your children, when sin comes into a home and there's tension because of that, that doesn't mean that automatically that person is just going to leave. It doesn't necessitate that at all. It just means you don't enjoy one another the same way. There's tension and you can live together. You can function together, but... Until there's repentance and restoration, the enjoyment of one another, the intimacy between one another is going to be minimal. And therefore, the more sin and selfishness that we tolerate in our lives, the more the intimacy breaks down. So it doesn't mean that God leaves us. See, God might have left David as he left Saul. That's why David pleased in Psalm 51, take not your Holy Spirit from me. Because the Spirit didn't remain with David. But new covenant believers were sealed by the Holy Spirit. He never leaves us. He never will leave us. But our enjoyment of Him can be quenched through sin. And this is so important to remember because when we're being tried, walking in the Spirit and enjoying the presence of God is often far from our minds. Because what's acute in our minds is, how do I get out of this trial? I hurt. I want to be done with this. How do I I get rid of this gnawing pain? How do I fix the situation? What do I need to do? And maybe if it's severe enough, we are just broken, but even in that brokenness, our thought is probably not, how can I enjoy you, God? How can I walk in the Spirit? Sometimes it can be but it's often not. Our typical reaction when we're being tried is to, is to try and solve the problem somehow. To alleviate the pain. But we need to be reminded of um, what Jesus told Martha. When, Martha, when Mary was, was sitting before Jesus and Martha was preparing the meal for the guests that were there. And, and she got frustrated with Jesus. She said, Jesus, tell my sister Mary to help me. And, Mar- and Jesus turns to Martha and he, she, he says, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and worried about so many things. But one thing is necessary. And Mary has found the best part. And what she has found will not be taken away from. And that's the same thing that's true for us. And it's really David's point as well. Only one thing is necessary. And we need to remember that especially in our trials. So we just remember one thing is necessary. That we would know and enjoy the presence of God. The truth is that when we do pursue God and make Him our priority, we're reminded that we are not alone, and that He will care for us. And in fact, even the trial that we're going for, through, we, can be, we, we know with confidence, because of so many promises in Scriptures, we know that that trial will ultimately work for good, because God is good to His children. And this is what, where David goes, even, in verse 6. He says, And now my head shall be lifted up above all my enemies around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Because walking with God was David's one desire. He could have confidence that God would preserve him and keep him safe. And so he gives us A model of when going through trials, we can still and should still pursue God passionately. Thirdly, we should plead to God knowing that we are not alone. As David says in verse 7, hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. And my heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O oh, you who have been my help, cast me not off, forsake me not, O oh God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. And do you see the shift in David's tone here? I mean, before he was reminding himself of the character and the power of God, and then he, he speaks of how God is, the presence of God is as, His one passion, his one desire, and because of that, he knows good will come of this trial, though he doesn't feel good in the midst of it. And then we see why. His heart is broken. He's saying, God, you told me to seek your face. I'm trying to seek your face, but I don't even know if you're here. I don't feel it. That's why he says, cast me not off, forsake me not. Because I believe you're the God of my salvation. And there's this, there's this extra, this, this, it's almost like a, a sucker punch to God where he says, because God, even my father and my mother have forsaken me. You can't. I got nobody to turn to. Don't cast me off. This says, God, I've sought your face. The face of God is just a, a figure of speech that refers to His presence. This is God, I've, I've aimed, as I've said before, to, to be in your presence, to, to seek you. But what of my situation? And I think so many of us and relate to this. We, we seek the Lord. We get up in the morning and we pray and we read the word and we plead to God on behalf of our brothers and sisters and for the sake of the nations and yet for whatever reason, out of nowhere, bam! The suffering comes. And we feel like we're going to maybe get through it and then another one, bam! And then another one, bam! And, and we just cry out, God, why? I thought I was doing what you wanted me to do. And just like David, it doesn't mean that seeking God's face, that things are going to be easy for us. Just like David, he was having to fight fear and loneliness and desperation. And see, despite the fact that we know God is for us, we still continue to struggle with the worldly mindset that assumes that if we really are seeking God in our life, that He will make our lives wonderful. That if we seek God with all our heart, that it's inevitably going to result in some sort of worldly blessing, some comfort, some, some security, some honor. And that's why we ask these sorts of questions when we're being tried. Questions like, if I'm seeking God's face, why is it that I'm having such a hard time parenting? God, I'm I'm trying to follow biblical principles. Why is this so hard? God, I'm seeking your face. Why is my marriage in tatters? Why do I see so little progress in my life? God, if I'm seeking your face, why is it that time and time again I'm without a job and I'm in increasing financial difficulty? God, if if we're seeking your face, why is ministry so hard? God, if we're seeking your face, why haven't you answered our prayers? And the truth is, That often when we do the right things, it's not going to result. Often, it's not going to result in things getting better. It's often just going to result in greater loneliness. Which is David's experience here. Notice verse 10. My father and my mother have forsaken me. We know of no accounts in David's life when this would have happened. It's possible that this might have been when he was declared an outlaw by Saul, and he had to run to the Philistines to get shelter. And that during that time, his parents are like, "You're an outlaw. We have one another. We don't want to have anything to do with you." But we really had there's no there's really no way to know what event in this in David's life this is speaking to. It's also possible that he's just being poetic. Expressing that even those whom he expected care and trust from have forsaken him. Those who, the the one or two people he thought he could trust have forsaken him, and so now he feels absolutely lonely, and so he goes to the only person he feels like he can trust. And the point is that even when the entire world forsakes you, you are not alone. God will never abandon His children. Whether you are suffering and you've been, you're alone physically, or maybe you're in the presence of your family and friends and you're just feeling emotionally alone, God is still there and He knows you He knows you better than anybody. And He recognizes your heart's inward turmoils and trials that have encompassed all your life. And He knows what you're going through now. And recognize that if God is aware of your pain and God promises to meet all of your needs, then He's the one person whom you need. And the one person that needs to know your issues. If God is for you, who can be against you? And so you can rest, even in anguish, because God is good. Notice that despite the fact that David is desperately anxious and lonely, he's confident in God, as verses 5 and 6 show. He says, the Lord will take me in. How does he know that? is the promises of God. God's promised it. His confidence is the result of believing the promises of God despite how he feels. I mean, David's not just being poetic. This is how he feels. He feels abandoned by everyone. And yet, he, even though that is what he feels, what he senses, what his mind is convinced is true, he also reminds himself But God said, He will take me in. And He fights how He feels with particular promises. And that's, of course, what we must do as well. And I found a few years ago uh, an article that I want to share with you, written by John Piper. This was just a brief blog that I found very helpful. This is what he writes. There are mornings when I wake up feeling fragile, vulnerable. It's often vague, no single threat, no one weakness, just an amorphous sense that something is going to go wrong and I'm going to be responsible. It's usually after a lot of criticism, lots of expectations that have deadlines and that seem too big and too many. As I look back over 50 years of such periodic mornings, I'm amazed at how the Lord Jesus has preserved my life and my ministry. The temptation to run away from the stress has never won out. Not yet, anyway. This is amazing. I worship Him for it. How has He done this? By desperate prayer and particular promises. I agree with Spurgeon. I love the I wills and the I shalls of God. Instead of letting me sink into a paralysis of fear or to run to a mirage of greener grass, he has awakened a cry for help and then answered that cry with a concrete promise. Here's an example. This is recent. I woke up feeling emotionally fragile, weak, vulnerable. I prayed, Lord, help me. I'm not even sure how to pray. An hour later, I was reading in Zechariah, seeking the help I had cried out for. It came. The prophet heard a great news from an angel about Jerusalem. And he quotes the verse. Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire around, declares the Lord, and I will be glory in her midst. Piper goes on to explain how the promises there in Zechariah sustained him particularly the promise that God would prosper and protect his people and be glorified in their midst. And he concludes his article saying this, God is never content content to give us the protection of his fire. He will give us the pleasure of his presence. This was sweet to me. This carried me for days. I took this with me to the pulpit I took it with me to family gatherings. I took it to staff meetings. I took it to phone calls and to emails. This has been my deliverance every time since I was first marking my King James Bible at age 15. God has rescued me with cries for help and concrete promises. This time he said to me, I will be a wall to her of fire all around and I will be the glory in her midst. Cry out to him then ransack the Bible for His appointed promise. We are fragile, but He is not. This brings me to the fourth point. Wait confidently in God. Ransack the Bible for a particular promise as you're in the midst of that anguish, and then hold fast to that promise and wait. Wait confidently in God. The Hebrew word means to hope or to look for with eager expectation. It means enduring patiently in confident hope that God will act with decisive help for His people. So it doesn't mean that a person just simply lets time pass by without responding. Like we might tell our children, wait before You cross the street, wait for mommy and daddy to hold your hand, wait for us. Or they say, I'm hungry, and you say, wait for dinner. It's not that sort of waiting. It's more like, wait to open your Christmas presents, because tomorrow is Christmas. It means to wait peacefully, with full confidence that God is going to provide. Again, it's not just the mere passing of time. It's expectant waiting. It's waiting with confidence that good things are about to happen. God will answer your prayers. See, notice David's confidence that precedes his exhortation to wait in verse 13. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Because of that belief, which is rooted in a concrete promise, David can wait not just by letting time pass by, but he can wait with confidence that God will answer his prayer. So David's confident that he will survive this trial, and in time, he will see how God was working this out for good. He's confident that God is going to answer his prayer to not give him up to the will of his adversaries. As he says in verse 12, And so he concludes by calling us to learn what he has learned, calling us to surrender our lives to God, to entrust God with our future, knowing he will provide for all of our needs. I enjoy watching movies, um, particularly when I get the chance, I like watching movies with my wife. Um... But I often, when I'm watching a movie with my wife, I end up watching a large portion of the movie all by myself. And that's because Julie tends to get very emotionally involved in the character's lives. And so if there's something in the movie that's maybe a little bit scary, or usually the issue is the person's about to get embarrassed and she can't handle it. She actually has to, have to get up and leave the room and she'll look in, is it over? About what's going to happen. But when she knows what's going to happen, she can sit through it. And likewise, if we know, even in a scary movie, what the end is going to be, because we've read the book or something, we're not anxious about what's going to happen. Instead, we, we want to see how it's all going to work out. How, are the char- how is the director going to flesh this part of the story out? Or how is this character going to respond? Or how is this actor going to act out this part? We become more critical or just observant, not anxious, in the midst of it. Because knowing how the story ends frees us to focus on the process and really to enjoy the process. And likewise as Christians, when we know that God is caring for us and that He's good and He is going to work out even the most difficult trials for good somehow, It frees us to not be fearful and anxious about the end because we can trust Him. God allows us to endure the trials and periods of uncertainty because it's through these things we have confidence that we will be conformed to Christ's likeness. As James says in James chapter 1, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds because you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And steadfastness will have its perfect effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. We know that God somehow uses trials to perfect us and to refine us, to make us more Christ-like. And when we know that that's what God does with trials, we can have confidence in and patience. And we can wait to see God make that truth known in our lives. Our responsibility is simply just to believe that that's true. To believe that that's true in the midst of trial. And so, going through pain or difficulty or hardship or some sort of suffering in your life does not mean that you are outside of God's will. In fact, it might mean that you are in God's will. Which is why David exhorts us, wait Stand fast confidently knowing that God is absolutely aware of your circumstances and he will care for you. He will provide for you. He will make this work out for good. So in summary, as you face trials in your life, my desire is that this psalm might be a place you can go back to. The kind of Help you remind yourself of how you're supposed to, to think, how you're supposed to process in the midst of that trial, because when you're in a crisis, it's not easy to think straight. In fact, you just, our, our thinking just kind of breaks down, and we tend to get just responsive or reactionary. And to just know that this is a text you can go to, and you can just you can pray it as David prays it. And remind yourself of these principles. In the midst of a trial, remind yourself of the character and power of God. That He is good. That He loves you. That He is aware of everything you're going through. That He is just. He will not let you be forsaken. And that you're not alone. Pursue God also as your perfect hope. In the midst of the trial, know that the temptation is going to be to just try and fix it, to just rely upon your own ingenuity of somehow to, to get out of the pain, whether by flight or by just um, creativity of how to get out of it, or some other fashion. But remind yourself that even though that's what your flesh Feels like doing, pursue God, because that is what you were created for. It's to be in His presence, and it's in His presence that this, that is fullness of joy. That where, that is where fullness of joy is found. Go to Him as your perfect hope. And thirdly, plead to God. Pour out your heart before Him. He is a refuge to us. Tell Him what you're feeling, what you're thinking. Even if you know it's not true, say, God, I know it's not true that you've forsaken me, but that's what I feel like. And pour out your heart to Him because He cares for you. And know that you're not alone. He hears you and He cares. And fourthly, wait confidently. Not just wait. It's not just sit around and to your thumbs but remind yourself God is doing something here and though it doesn't look like the future has any bright spots on the horizon and though, though even though you cannot figure out rationally how, how this could possibly work for good you don't need to you're not in charge of making it work for good God is and he said he would and God is not a liar is true. And he will be faithful to his promises. So wait confidently on him. Lord, it is. It, everything here is true, and yet very difficult to live out. And so I pray that as you bring us into the trials that we need and that the world needs, to see your grace at work in us. Lord, as you bring us into these trials, I pray that this psalm would be, a, would be a, a refuge to us. It would give us guidance. Lord, it would give us guidance to know how to pray for people. It would give us guidance to know how to pray for our, ourselves and our own circumstances. Lord, I pray that this, this, this psalm would be a balm to our souls, that it would be a, a support and it would strengthen us. And I pray that you would help us to think rightly so that we would honor you in the midst of these trials, that we would show that you, we really do believe you, we really, really do trust you. And I pray that you would strengthen us, Holy Spirit, so that you would be brought glory in everything that happens. Whether it's in places where there's great joy, or in the valleys of the shadow of death. Help us to bring you honor and glory, for you are worthy of it. We ask these things in your name. Amen.